Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and our very special guest, Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, Heidi, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks Hello. for having us. So we are here to wrap up our Sense and Sensibility discussion uh, to answer your questions, listener questions. We posted the thread on the Facebook group. Um, so if you haven't done that yet, you you uh, you missed the boat, I suppose. But you can always join the group to uh, to join the conversation that's ongoing there on the thread. And of course, you can also follow us on on Twitter and on Instagram at Close Reads Pods. Should you need to get in touch with us, you can also do that at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. We got lots of questions. There's lots of conversation, some of it making fun of our good friend Brandon, uh, some of it arguing with him, but we'll leave that for the, for the thread. So if you, if you want to engage in that debate, that um, sometimes not so gentle debate, you, you can do so over there. <laughs> I want to say a quick couple notes. Uh, we'll give a little bit of news quickly for those of you who um, don't follow us on social media or get our email. We are going to begin the Odyssey. We're actually going to begin it next week. So next week, we are going to start with books one and two. And then the week after that, we'll do two, uh, three and four. And then after that, it'll vary a little bit based on what's going on in that section of that epic poem. So I'm going to send an email out later this week that, um, that shares all that. So if you want to make sure you are privy to that information, you can head over to the Facebook group or com and sign up for the email there. And we'll send all that out. If you're not on social media, that's the best place to get that. Um, and then on August 7th, we're going to bring back the plays, The Thing. And uh, that's when Tim is done with his long countrywide road trip. And Tim's going to um, lead the conversation there through Othello. And then after that, we're going to do The Tempest. Um, and I'll be posting... You know, further out reading schedules on on the different books after the Odyssey, we are going to do um, the Rector of Justin by Auchincloss, and then we're going to do um, a River Runs Through It, I think. So we've got lots of great stuff uh, coming down the pipe, as they say, down the pipeline around the corner. You know, choose your metaphor. In the meantime, this week, let's talk about Sense and Sensibility one final time. Before we do that, I want to just thank you, Karen, for being on the show. Um, this has been a lot of fun to have you. Uh, to have you joining us. Um, it was fortuitous or providential, I suppose, that you were working on a Sense and Sensibility project. But it's been so much fun to talk to you. Um, I know Heidi and I both love your book. And so it's been, uh, I guess, special even to just be able to talk about this book with you. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. It's been an honor and it's been fun too, most importantly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that it's been, been fun for you too and, and not too stressful. Um, hopefully these questions today won't, won't um, make it... Won't, won't leave a sour taste in your mouth. I think there's plenty of great questions here, but sometimes they can be uh, uh, cleverly, wor- <laughs> cleverly worded. Uh, so let's start here. Um, Sarah asked a question that we did talk about. I brought this up last week. Um, so maybe she didn't listen to the episode at that at that point, but I want to bring up some of the bring it up within the context of her question. And she asks this: Why is Edward such a prize? 
obviously he's a man of his word, which is to be admired, but he's also portrayed as shy, awkward, moody, and directionless. So what was it that drew Eleanor to him on such short acquaintance and made her so secure, so secure in her love through uncertainty? And then she says, why the blazes did he visit the Dashwoods cottage in the early middle part of the book? Um, surely his obligation as their brother's brother-in-law could be, could have been politely excused. It seems he wanted to see and spend more time with Eleanor, even while he was still engaged to Lucy. So this makes me like him less for keeping Eleanor dangling, so to speak. So this is Sarah. Um, and people did respond to this, um, including Brandon, who says that Colonel Brandon's the actual prize. Uh, but um, so I think, you know, based on the portrayal, Karen, you did mention last week that in some ways her attraction to him has been solidified before the book ever began. So is that enough to answer her question, do you think? Um, well, no, I, I, I think she asked something else too, which is worth looking at. She asked, mm-hmm. she says, you know, he's portrayed as, However, she said it, not, not, not awkward, moody and directionless. And that, that's true. But I think that portrayal primarily comes from Marianne. Um, That's how Marianne sees him. I may not be remembering some other um, narrative perspective, but it's Marianne who kind of sees him as not as uh, charming as some other men, I guess. So um, that might be a further complication to how he's portrayed. I don't know. What do you think, Heidi? Yeah, I, I think that um, that you're, you're right. That is how Marianne sees him. And that's kind of how Marianne needles at Eleanor about it when they're kind of doing their passive-aggressive sister thing. But <laughs> there's... Um, but Marianne has a great affection for Edward and wants her sister... She wants Eleanor to marry him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that the directionlessness of Edward is a bit of Austin pointing at some of the flaws within the society. I think that there's some hmm. social commentary on that portrayal too. Like this is a society that can come up with nothing for such a good man to do with his life. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's also then dependent on his mother Uh and her good opinion of him, which of course is lost and then somewhat regained. And, and so there's, there's all this complicatedness. We, we've all, the three of us have talked a lot about the economic pressure that these people are under. And Edward is a victim of that just as the women are. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, I think it's very hard for a man who is a good catch in this society to meet our standards of what constitutes a good catch post, you know, post American dream and democracy and so, and middle, the rise of the middle class. So, um, yeah, I think we do have a hard time warming to someone like Edward, um, because their society was so different and, you know, it's not like he's hardworking and the kinds of things that we would, would would appeal to us today. Right. So, um, I joked that that Brandon, for for obvious reasons, given his name, um, says that Colonel <laughs> Brandon is actually the prize. Um, I'm curious about what you think of of that sort of, I guess, dichotomy that he's proposing there. That that Brandon's the actual prize, but Eleanor loves Edward for the reasons that she loves Edward. You know, even if maybe he's not the prize, it 
it, it wouldn't be surprising that Eleanor of all characters would be drawn towards someone who is perhaps not traditionally thought of as the prize. But then in the end, Marianne gets the prize. So do you, I mean, is the dichotomy that Brandon's suggesting there fair? I mean, do you think that in the end, Colonel Brandon is the one who's the real prize? Or is that, is that just Brandon, you know, <laughs> is this, are we just learning a lot more about Brandon than we are about Colonel Brandon? <laughs> Brandon LeBlanc is the the <laughs> hidden um, or sometimes not so hidden kind of... There's nothing hidden about Brandon, no, right? there's Brandon? nothing hidden about Brandon. <laughs> he is just... He, he's a man who forms very strong opinions about things and, and gets conversations going. And, and then um, we make fun of him on the air when he can't right, defend himself. It's so great. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I, he doesn't need defending from us. He is a... Of course um, not. No. Yes. Um, but he... I think he's making a really good point that Colonel... And and I think that's one of the big questions of the novel that comes up at the end over and over again. Why does Marianne get this guy who has all this money and he's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And why doesn't the protagonist get the better man? Does that mean I'm missing something and the... Edward is supposed to be the better man? Or is it just an opinion that anybody is free to have and Brandon's taking a stand, right? (laughs) As he does. Yes. This is a good question because I think, you know, again, in in Austin, everything's nuanced and complicated. So I think both Edward and Colonel Brandon are prizes in different ways. Mm. Um, Colonel Brandon is definitely the more active character person. He's more, you know, he does things and he intervenes and he helps and he, you know, he uh, doesn't, he's not passive the way so many of the men in this aristocracy are um so i but you know but i think what it is and and i'll even go back to pride and prejudice again i think that colonel brandon is the best catch for marianne because he is what she needs and i think that eleanor and edward are much better matched as well um because they sort of each each part of the couple tempers one another appropriately it's like it's like jane and and bingley are they they love one another but they're sort of you know they're both sort of not that passionate kind of people and they're Hmm. warm rather than hot um and so they're well matched whereas elizabeth and darcy you know they love each other but they're also sort of equally passionate um so i think you know i i think in austin so much is about the match, not just the person. Right. That, yeah, that's it. Well, hence the, the titles, right? Or at least the... Right. Yeah. I mean, can, and you, and any, as we've talked about, any, you could have any variety of words paired together um, about any number of characters in these books, I suppose. Um, okay, Gabrielle asks... Why does Austin save the big wrap-up and resolution for the very last chapter and pages of the story? It seems abrupt and hasty, almost hasty, how she wraps up the Marianne Brandon storyline. We did touch on this a little bit last time. But she asks, is this stylistic of the time or is this an Austin thing, perhaps even evidence of her inexperience? Karen, would you say that 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 kind of a wrap-up to the storyline, as Gabrielle put it, is that a common thing of the period in literature? I would say it's a common thing of these earlier novels to not culminate with the marriage the way, the way that we expect. And what I mean by that is we have an Austin sort of abrupt endings, but we also have an earlier novelist 
the marriage occurring way before the end because there are other things mm-hmm. that happen as a result of it. So just, you know, the ending being in the marriage and that sort of being the culmination is more of a modern thing. I think. Is that, um, do you, is that because the, formally things have evolved or there's more like the way we think about pathos and catharsis and all that has evolved more? I mean, I, I don't know if those questions are even separate actually now that I say them. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think I think part of I think that is part of it, but I think also again these novels by Austin and and other ones that I'm thinking of are not um, they're not just about marriage; they're about society and all and everything being right in the family and in society, mm. and not just for the couple. Um, mm. And so now we focus much more on the individual protagonist and uh, and 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 their development and resolution and, and so forth. So, um, but that's part of how the novel, the, the novel developed along with this rise of the individual. And so it's, you know, the, no, the form and content of the novel sort of evolve along with our concept of the individual and, and the prominence and importance of the individual. Hmm. Heidi, do you want to add to that or do you want to go to the next question? Well, I mean, I do just want to briefly say also, we we need to keep in mind, she is not, again, just telling a love story. There's a whole lot of other threads that are going into this that are being developed and resolved. And so we, you know, as readers, we want to get to the end when they get married and we figure out who ends up with who, but that's not always the whole point. So as she kind of goes quickly there, that feels like the culmination, but there's all these other threads that she's tracing as well. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, due to the nature of this this particular mm-hmm. episode, we're going to move on to the next question now. Um, okay. So Anne asks, um, she says, I'm interested in how the, the, that society, meaning the society of Austin's time and in the book, viewed Willoughby's past impregnation and abandonment of Eliza. I know that her life was effectively ruined. And in my eyes, his actions with Eliza disqualified him from suitable marriage with Marianne before they even met. Is that how Austin and her society would have viewed it? Um, a couple people um, echoed this question and the desire for us to bring it up. So, um, um, uh, Gabrielle commented in particular that it surprised me that Eleanor gave him any sympathy, albeit reserved, knowing this part of his past. And I assume she means when he came and explained himself. She was surprised that given that, given his past, Eleanor sympathized with him at all. So, Karen, I'll go to you first again because that seems to be the pattern that I've fallen into. Um, how... Did would they have viewed his relationship with Eliza as disqualifying him from suitable marriage with Marianne before they even met? Despite Marianne's opinion that you know the the, the uh, there's an only one person type person for each person. I have no idea what I just said, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is um actually the my my um not coincidentally I decided to cover this book in my summer book club sponsored by my church. So we actually, Mm. uh, we just finished volume two last week and this question came up about Willoughby and, and how he would be viewed in this society. And it was a really good discussion and now I can't remember it all, but um, (laughs) yeah, I think, I think there are, are, I guess, I guess some members of the book club were, they were actually just even sort of surprised that this sort of stuff was going on. And yes, it was. Um, So we have a couple of um, indications going on in the book. One is that um, Willoughby um, is at risk of, or he does get disinherited because of this behavior. Right. Mm, So, um, so there is, 
so, but it's because the woman, and I can't even remember her name, but you know, his benefactress, um, you know, here's someone, I mean, she holds this power in her hands over him and she must be of a certain kind of character to wield it that way. Um, but someone else might not. So, mm-hmm. and then we have Colonel Brandon who got into a, du- didn't he duel? Was it, he dueled with Willoughby. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and he thought that would take care of it. So C- Colonel Brandon, you know, has his own sort of form of, of um, punishment or justice. Um, so we have characters who show how serious a thing this is. Um, but we also, but, but it's also, I mean, clear in this culture that this double standard is alive and well. I mean, the, all of the concern over Marianne is that something like this could have happened to her too. Um, and so, so it seems, so it seems like there, it, it seems like there is sort of acceptance of the reality that this double standard this double sexual standard exists and it happens and it's normal, even if we frown upon it. Um, But at the same time, we don't want to be the ones or our loved ones to be the ones who fall victim to it. Um, Mm. It sounds an awful lot like today. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I don't know. Okay. So Heidi, this is a great question. It is. Heidi. So then let's talk about the second part of the question that Gabrielle followed up with. um, Because she asked about Eleanor's response. Like why was, Given that, why then was Eleanor as you know sympathetic as she was, knowing this part of his past and knowing his, you know, um, about about what could have happened to to her sister? I'm glad you asked me that because this is a part of the question I'm really interested in. I I think from my reading of that section, the sympathy that Eleanor has is not necessarily to let him off the hook for a moral failure. Oh, now I get it, blah, blah. But her sympathy is oriented towards at now, at least I know he loved my sister. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's personal. It's about mm. the relationship with Marianne. Mm. And it is very clear from the way that Eleanor thinks and talks to Willoughby that she considers him morally disqualified from pursuing Marianne, not just because he's married, but because of what he did. The sympathy is not Mm. oriented at all towards what he did, but she's Mm. thankful that she knows that he loved her sister. Hmm. And just, just historic, I I completely agree with what Heidi is saying here. It it wasn't, and you put it so well. Um, It's almost like she was it's like, oh, we weren't crazy. We were, right. you know, mm. right. Mm. Um, we're justified in that sense. Um, yeah. But another just sort of historical um, background is that in the 18th century, um, you know, well, even before, but, you know, really peaking in the 18th century, there was actually a saying, and some of the other earlier novels dealt with this, there's a saying that a reformed rake makes the best husband. Huh. I've never known that before. Yeah. <laughs> I learned something. That's yes. interesting. So there was just Can this, you say what that is again? Yes. A reformed rake makes the best husband. Hmm. Now, there are a few layers of of it. You know, one sense of that is simply that, oh, a, a man who's gone out and sown his wild oats and gotten it over with, you know, he's going <laughs> to settle down and be the best husband. Then there's another meaning that's a little bit, you know, bodier. Um, <laughs> But it yep. was—it was sort of—it was, it was uh, it, 
an, a saying, an ideal. And so a lot of novels dealt with it. So, so the novels, so Pamela by Samuel Richardson, who was a huge influence on Austin, one of her favorite novelists, um, is the story of, of this rake uh, who tries to seduce slash rape Pamela and doesn't succeed and ends up winning her heart and marries her and she lives happily ever after. And, and I, when I teach this to my students today, they just cannot believe like she would marry a guy who tried to rape her. Like, and that's a happily ever after. And there's a lot of unpacking we have to do of that reality of that time. So now we are 50 or 60 years later and things are changing. There is actually sort of an elevation in morality that's taking place in Austin's lifetime that continues through the Victorian age. Um, and so, but there's still, hmm. so, so Austin doesn't adhere to that old view that a reform break makes the best husband, but she still lives in a society that has that remnants of that idea. Do you know where that saying derives from or, or where, like where it started popping up? What time period? Um, I don't know if it has one sort, one origin, but it just, I mean, it's just rooted in so much romanticism and, um, and classical literary tropes. I mean, it's one of those things where, um, you know, we can... Even today, we have trouble. Like there can be things that are in literature that weren't really in life, but we look back and and you know they're they're literary tropes. That doesn't mean they really were lived out, but then they do influence thinking, if that makes sense. Um, so it was definitely a literary trope, um, mm. but it it was we can look. I mean, it obviously carried weight and influence. Um, but I don't. I mean, there there was a lot of. Um, in just body poetry and restoration drama, you know, that whole period was one that was quite licentious. Um, it sounds to me like it's something that would even, that it would even go back to like Chaucer. Yeah. It sounds like something Chaucer would have made the theme of one of his tales. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of, you know, Christians today think, and this is a whole other topic, but I'll just try to put it as briefly as possible. We think that morality has always been on a decline. Like, <laughs> And that's just not, I mean, there, it cycles in and out. There are peaks and valleys and then there are some things that are moral that are approved and other things that are, are immoral that are, you know, I mean, it just, it just shifts, but, um, but there, but there was a licentiousness that defined the restoration age in the, in the 18th century that kind of waned with the rise of the Victorian era and the evangelical influence. And so there are peaks and valleys. And so Austin was writing at a time where, where morality and, authentic Christianity was starting, was sort of on, on the rise. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Again, the, uh, the nature of this episode is that sometimes we end the topic a little bit abruptly, but this next question comes Just from like Austin. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> next chapter. Um, all right. This comes from April and she has a question about, um, about the narrator on the unreliability. And she says that the books that we've read this year have some measure of unreliability in the narrator. We have Stephen's self-deception in Remains of the Day. We have the mystery and betrayal in The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, the non-memoir memoir of Ralph Moody and Little Bridges, and then now the shifting perspectives and opinions in Sense and Sensibility. And she says that this is a literary device that was new to her, and so she would love to hear more discussion about it. And she asks very specifically, what benefits does a book gain from an unreliable narrator? And how could it be used poorly? And then this is a, probably something 
to touch on. When approaching an unknown book, what should be our assumptions about a narrator going in? Um, so, uh, Heidi, I'll let you touch on the on this one first, just to move, mix things up a little bit. Um, yes. What <laughs> benefits does a book gain from an unreliable narrator? And we'll start with that part of the question first. I mean, there's there's three different parts here that we can we can address, but. And I don't want to spend the rest of the show on it. We could obviously do like an entire right. episode just talking about unreliable narrators or do a webinar or something. Um, but what do you think about this? What's your, uh, what are your That's thoughts? a fair caution for me, what you just said, because <laughs> I, as you know, because we've had this conversation before, I love unreliable narrators. They're one of my favorite literary devices. I think they're a well-written, unreliable narrator is like a literary masterpiece craft kind of thing. So, you know, Wuthering Heights, for example, like there, that's just the most perfect unreliable narrator. So anyway, I, um, I do think that with the shifting perspectives in Austin, we are, we see multiple people's flawed perspectives and that could be, you could say that that's an unreliable narrator that would probably fall into that category. But I think it is more this idea of let's look at this from multiple perspectives um, in order to kind of get a view of the characters and also of this society. Um, so, but a benefit that it gains is a, from an unreliable narrator is that, I mean, it makes the book more interesting, A, and it makes the reader into a kind of detective when we are trying to figure out, figure out what's really going on. And that draws us into the book and makes us in a, in a uh, gives us as readers and as critics and students, um, the, uh, the capacity to make judgments on what's happening in the book, including the narrator as a character. If the narrator is perfect and says everything perfectly, or if we have kind of that outside voice that's just kind of godlike looking over the story, um, it takes a little bit, I think it takes more work on the reader's part to get invested and involved in the story than an unreliable narrator gives us the opportunity to make judgments. So I think that's a benefit. Mm. Karen, so as a, well, you want to add to that or should I move on to this next part? Well, um, well, I just, I mean, I think technically speaking, and, and there's, then there's always different ways of looking at it, but unreliable narrators are generally first person narrators. So they mm -hmm. are like a character as Heidi mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they are, um, it, but so someone who's writing irony or satire, I guess, in a, in a looser sense, they're unreliable, um, but in a different way from what I would strictly call an unreliable narrator, if that, if that makes sense. I mean, irony and satire and comedy are different modes. Um, so, yeah, I'd have to brush up on that a little bit. But um, No, you're right. In this book, this isn't an unreliable narrator. Right, you're right. right. This is right, just multiple right. perspectives kind yes, of exactly, exactly. settling behind the eyes of a certain character in a certain situation. Right. right. And, well, and, and irony, by definition, always has sort of a double perspective. And mm -hmm. so it forces, it, which is not the same thing as being yeah. unreliable. But it can, right. have, it can still force us to ask the critical questions and to not trust something what's being said on a literal, you know, way. So, so that, that's where I think, um, where this question, it, maybe the heart of this question is we can't trust 
the literal words that are being said, that that's the perspective, whether it's irony or unreliability. And so we have to do this kind of work as readers. The technically as a, as a literary term, I mean, it's only what, not, it's not even 60 years old, right? Like it wasn't at Wayne Booth in his book, the rhetoric of fiction or whatever his book was called that first coined the term. And I mean, we, people were talking about how do you trust what people are saying in books, but it wasn't Mm. technically spoken of before that, was it? I mean, like maybe not as a, term i don't know you're probably right about that i really have no idea but as a literary device it has been used for long oh right right well i mean yeah right of course yeah yeah. but in terms of naming it and and i thinking about it in terms of like a technical way it's It's a very modernist as in literary modernism and modernism and art um idea to to have this um unreliability yeah so and just question and and the and the multiple perspectives and so forth i mean i think of of i'm actually my neck working on my next um introduction and that's to heart of darkness i mean mm-hmm. there is you know they're one of the first modernist or predict you know sort of foreshadowings of modernist literature and there's an unreliable narrator in in marlowe even though it's a frame narrative like weathering heights but um right so yeah, I I, th- I think um, it's a it's a good question, and we get into some really intricate literary questions that we could debate for a long time, and I'd have to brush up on. I I, I keep as we've been sitting here, as I've been sitting here listening to you both talk, I keep trying to figure out what it says about Heidi that when she said that the, her, her, the, the unreliable narrator she most thinks of is the one from Wuthering Heights. That's fascinating to me. Of all the unreliable narrators in all of literature, that's the one that you thought of first. I love that one. I think, well, and I think it was my first introduction to it. When it occurred to me, like what April is saying, what I hear her saying here that I love is it never occurred to me not to trust the narrator before. Mm-hmm. Hmm, right? right, And so once we accept that, once we as readers say, I don't actually have to believe the protagonist, that changes how you read. That's right. a really important moment in our development as readers. Hmm. Um, okay, well, that brings me then to, the, to this and, last... Oh, let, me, let me just throw one little yeah, thing yeah, in there. Yeah. And, and if people understood that, they wouldn't be so quick to ban uh, Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Which or that's the things. Yeah. that's the that's the book I think of first when I think of unreliable narrators. Yeah. So so then she asked this bit at the end when approaching an unknown book or ostensibly a, a, a new book, what should be our assumptions about a narrator? So that gets into you know the the act of reading, the art of reading. You know if if we're if we're now we become aware that we that not every narrator is trustworthy. It's never occurred to me not to trust mm-hmm. somebody. Then what does that mean about how I start reading a book in terms of my interaction with a narrator? And I guess the question is, well, it alludes to what you just said. What are the questions that we should be asking as we begin to get to know and experience the the perspectives uh, of a narrator in a book? Karen, uh, when you're thinking about teaching in particular, how do you how do you think about that question? Well, I. Well, if I'm teaching something, then I go in way, knowing way more than... No, that's true. That's so, true. So just as a reader, I mean, I think we should assume nothing um, and and go in with our eyes open. And, and so, you know, I tend more towards formalist criticism. So I'm really just like wanting to look mainly at the text mm-hmm. um, and how the text answers those questions. But we also measure it against the world. Like if we're saying, if we ask ourselves is this guy serious? Is this, what you know, I mean, ask those kinds of questions. If something t- sees, if we see something is off, 
then we say, okay, is it off because this is a different world that I don't understand? Or is it off because there's something else going on here? Um, in the same way, I mean, I wish, oh, wishes were horses. Um, <laughs> I wish people would approach Twitter, Twitter this way. But, I mean, I, you know. That, that was a fantastic sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if someone, like, I, you know, I, I yeah, if, stop and ask yourself if, if a tweet is being ironic or straight. Just ask yourself if it seems over the top, then, like, just say, oh, maybe they're being sarcastic here. I mean, a simple question, but um, yeah. people don't often ask that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I think one one question to ask when you're going in is, is it possible? So let's say you pick you pick up a book and you're like, oh, I found this book called Catcher in the Rye, and this looks interesting, mm-hmm. right? And then you start to read it, and you like a couple pages in, you're like, I actually just hate this guy, right? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes that's what happens. I think Holden's wonderful, but a lot of times people pick up that book, get a couple pages in, and cast it aside, this degenerate story and whatever, right? But what if you said, is this how I'm supposed Mm -hmm. to feel about this character? What if that's on purpose, right? Now you're behind the eyes of an unreliable narrator, and then you can make proper judgments about the world of that novel instead of just assuming that the moral world of the novel is exactly what is at face value. Mm-hmm. And um, so if you're wanting to love Catcher in the Rye, you have to know that this is an unreliable narrator, right? Mm-hmm. So that, I think one of those questions is, is it possible that this kind of reaction that I'm having to this protagonist when I'm behind his eyes is something I'm supposed to have? And then what if I just kind of lean in to that and follow that where it goes? Exactly. I love the distinction that you kind of, made there uh, between making assumptions and making judgments. Mm. Um, Yeah, they're two different things. Yeah. Okay, um, next question. This is from Hope. She asks, how do you approach teaching a novel such as this one where knowledge of the social context is so related to understanding the book? How do you help students recognize the humor or satire? And do you have any strategies for helping younger, say, teen readers to lay aside their modern assumptions and accept the world of the author? Karen... I'll start with you on this one as as a professor. You're dealing with this one, you know, every day in your classrooms. And then Heidi, uh, I'll let you just jump in after that. Well, I can't think of a class um, where I don't teach works chronologically. Whatever whatever the period is, whatever the genre is, um, mm. that's a big that's a big part. Teaching sort of thing in context, even if it's just like a century or two centuries that I'm covering or or whatever, because because so much of literature is, as, as I've already talked about, like Austin's influence of Samuel Richardson, who was the father of the English novel and she's drawing upon. Um, so teaching a work in historical context and, and chronology is helpful. And um, yeah, I spend a lot of time providing background and, and talking about the kinds of things that we've been talking about here uh, to, to fill students in, which, which is not, you know, which, which people might think, oh, that's, you know, I can't just pick up a novel and read it. Well, yeah, you can, but you can also, you know, I mean, who doesn't watch a new news? Who doesn't watch Stranger Things without talking to other people about it and and having a Facebook thread about it? I mean, we're even when we consume popular culture, we usually do it as kind of part of a community and we talk about it. 
And so even picking up classic works of literature, there, there are all kinds of, of um, resources that we can draw on to increase our understanding and our appreciation. So um, I, think, I think we have to do that. Hmm. There's a follow-up question here, which Lisa says, what's the most important thing, the, the most important thing to stress in teaching Austin, aside from historical and social context, which is tough on its own, I think is what she was, yeah, which is tough on its own. Um, Karen, unless you answer that, and then I want to yeah. turn to Heidi uh, for the next question. I do want to move a little bit faster on a couple of mm-hmm. these questions here because there's a few I want to get to. So what do you think about that? Most important thing to stress in teaching Austin? That's, it's irony that mm-hmm. there's satire there. I mean, I, I've met, I can't even count the people who've told me that they did not know that. And then when they went back and read it, understanding that, that there's irony there, it changes everything. Mm. Okay. Aaron asks, how do you turn to give this one to you? This book is often described as being a comedy of manners, but I also hear many say that it's a sort of handbook for how to behave properly. I used to find those ideas to be irreconcilable, but I think your discussions on the podcast have helped me see it as a bit more nuanced combination of both. Having said that, how do you feel that this book edifies a modern audience? Assuming the modern reader can understand the expectations at that time, what are the takeaways for our time? You mentioned a few modern terms that apply to the story, the drunk dial and maybe ghosting, for example. (laughs) There was definitely some ghosting going on. So what virtues transcend the satirical aspects of these characters' manners and can be applied um, today? Sure. It is a great question. And she's right. Those things can be reconciled. Uh, there is a lot of satire and irony, but if you look at the fate of the main characters, you're going to find the moral virtues that Austin is upholding and pointing at, right? So these young women that have remained virtuous throughout the whole story, uh, they haven't fallen into the foolishness or the evils of, the, of, of what the satire is pointing at. Um, or if they have to a certain extent, then they become redeemed. They repent and are redeemed and then they are um, rewarded. So that's kind of how you can tell in these comedy of manners in some of these novels, uh, what kind of virtues are being upholded is the fates of the main characters. Um, and uh, so I think in terms of what virtues transcend the satirical aspects of these characters' manners, which, by the way, is a beautifully constructed sentence, like a beautifully crafted question. <laughs> um, I, again, look at that. Look at the, these main characters that are Colonel Brandon, Edward, uh, and then Marianne and Eleanor. You look at how they live and how they are rewarded at the end and, the, and what those are the virtues that you're going to be looking for. And we've talked about those over the podcast. Karen, do you want to have 30 seconds to add to that? I, I think also that just all the film adaptations that are mm. updated versions of the stories are really great ways to like clueless, same story, modern times, or, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that, I think that's, that's why Austin is, is so often adapted and updated in film because every, because what she says so, still so applies to today. Mm. Okay, next question. This is from Elizabeth. Um, is Lucy Steele the actual worst female Austin villain? I definitely think she is and would love to hear the host's thoughts on this one. Christy says, I don't know, Mary Crawford is pretty bad, but way funnier, so there's that. Karen, what do you think? Is Lucy Steele the actual worst female Austin villain? Um, <laughs> she, prob- she probably is, I think. I mean, she's the one freshest on my mind, so I don't want to give a... <laughs> give, yeah, uh, that's I fair. the right to change my mind, but yeah, she's, she's pretty bad. She's so bad. I really like the turn that this thread takes into Harry Potter. <laughs> it's like my favorite <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, I was just browsing <laughs> over that. 
Um, then we get to talking about how Umbridge is worse mm-hmm. than Voldemort, which is agreed, right? So <laughs> I'm I'm on the side of Mary Crawford. I think Mary Crawford is worse than Lucy Steele, but um, because she is degenerate in, in like she her virtue is lost as well. So um I think Mary Crawford yeah. from Mansfield Park, right? Mm-hmm. For yes, for, yeah. yes. But I think Lucy Steele is the most like Anno- the most umbrageish, mm. like yeah, just mm. the most like God, just yeah, annoying, and, oh, yeah. 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 yeah, and yeah. and low class, which is also really stressed in this book. Wasn't Mary Crawford played in the movie by the same character who played the main character in the, um, Howard's End? What is her name? Oh, I don't know. I haven't seen Howard's End. Oh, uh, well, you should watch that. Um, okay. uh, I don't. I have no idea why. I felt like I needed to say that. Um, Okay. Always bring in the movie. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Okay, Why would Eleanor and her mother care is question? Well, I was going to, I was going to come back to that one. Well, I guess now we can do that. Um, Sorry. (laughs) uh, Okay. So Kara asks, why would Eleanor and her mother consider it unseemly, unseemly to simply ask Marianne if she was engaged? It's hard for me to imagine not just having the conversation with a sister who is a best friend or a daughter that I'm extremely close to. Uh, Heidi, what do you think? Actually, I don't know the answer to that. Karen, what do you think? This came up in my book, my in-person book club too. Okay. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's a couple things. One thing is it would be, it's such a bad thing for Marianne to do. Like, it's just so sort of unspeakable to think that she would be carrying on without actually being engaged, that it, it's a hard thing to bring up. It's sensitive um, because it's, it would, it would be acute. You know, I mean, think of something just, well, I guess today's like, like it would be hard to, even if you're close sisters to say, Hey, are you sleeping with your boyfriend? I mean, it would be almost like on that level, you, like you just wouldn't want to, it would be accusatory mm. to even ask, I think. Mm. Um, mm. And, and they don't want to even think that she would be doing these things without being engaged, uh, you know, doing these things, meaning, you know, I mean, just the, the social impropriety of gallivanting around with him. Um, hmm. That's how serious it was. Hmm. Okay. Um, Julia asks, Heidi, I'll run to you on this one. What's the purpose role of Margaret Dashwood's character? She mm-hmm. doesn't seem to serve any plot function, but Austin is too masterful to write in characters who don't matter, right? Would there be some social propriety problem with Mrs. Dashwood remaining at the cottage alone when Marianne and Eleanor go to London? And then, um, uh, I, I'm guessing this is Fern, uh, says she put that she puzzled about that too for a while and then decided Austin needed someone who could put certain classified information into Mrs. Jennings' hands in a way that doesn't put us readers on our guard about other adult characters. So um, Heidi, what's your take on this? The purpose of Margaret Dashwood's character and then Karen, you jump in on that as well if you'd like to. Yeah, I have always read it as a necessary to the plot, specifically to their mother being left alone when they went to London because it would be kind of unkind to leave her without somebody there. So um, that's, I, I have thought of her as kind of a, a, a crutch character, like certain things. She, she doesn't have much of a personality or a big role, but she fills in some of those other things. Maybe there's more to it than that though, Karen. Well, there's that funny part where she you know, reveals uh, Eleanor's love, you know, this character, <laughs> uh, initial, yeah. whatever, and that's a, a little bit of a humor. But I almost think that it's, uh, I, this may be overreading it, 
I would never be guilty of such a thing. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, what Austin is constantly doing is talking about you know, how virtue is the moderation between two extremes. And I think having a third sister is actually, mm. even though it's not drawn out, it, there's a, there's a moderating presence there. It's not okay. just two sisters. And I always think of Margaret as just kind of that little reminder of, um, of, you know, a more Trinitarian view. I don't, I don't know, but it's, it's, that, no, I like that. Uh, evening one another out. Um, yeah. I was thinking about her as almost being, so as much as Eleanor and Marianne change in, in great significant ways. And then in other ways, they kind of stay the same. Margaret is kind of, um, in some ways, like a blank slate who still has yet to grow up. And there's almost this question of who is she going to grow up to be more like? I mean, as you said, is she going to be sort of the middle ground between them as she grows up? Or is she going to lean one way or the other? And so there's this sort of um, stasis of with, with, where she's got to make these choices. We know she's going to have to make these choices in the future. So whereas Eleanor and Marianne are off in their families, what choices is Margaret going to make that either imitate or separate that either bring her closer to her sisters who are now very close or who remain very close after getting married or separate her from them. So I, that's, I don't know that Austin was doing that on purpose, but that's what strikes me is that this, this character is going to have to make choices that are going to determine who she's most like and who she's most not like, mm -hmm. or, you know, um, mm -hmm. and anyway, and maybe it's just a point of realism. I mean, these families didn't have just two children unless, you know, unless there were some health or illness issues. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, just families had many, many children, generally speaking, and that makes this family more realistic. And they're, Did, and they're all girls. There is no male figure there. It just, um, after the father dies. So, Did Austin have two sisters herself? She had one sister, but... Um, uh, five, how many there are eight eight children i think so only two were girls okay i got okay. the number right but many many brothers okay um all right uh jesse asks does jane austen hate extroverts we're always her <laughs> worst characters and only grow better by becoming less extroverted uh heidi i will let you ask that <laughs> love this that. question so i mean some of that's going to be just kind of the british ethos right like this and especially that time period, like, you know, women are supposed to be restrained and quiet and children should be seen and not heard. And everything is so proper. And um, there's these rules around interactions who you can talk to and how long you could talk and what you do for fun and who you can be with. And so that's, I mean, and that's kind of some of the delight of Austin. That's why modern readers, I think, are initially drawn to Austin is this idea that like, wow, this hierarchical like society in which everything is kind of set out and um but she's right a lot of the 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 women who talk too much the women who are you know longing for attention from from men and who dominate a conversation they are the foolish ones that receive some kind of comeuppance in the story so and i think that has more to do with the comedy of manners idea than it has to do with any kind of innate personality kind of thing that austin was reacting against but i think it's a fair question well, I love the way Jesse put it. She said, I love Austin, but she's a cautionary tale for this ENFP. Yep. <laughs> Karen, do, what do you think about this? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think those categories are just, they didn't exist in Austin's time. Um, and so she, I think she would, the category, you know, she would be more about, you know, 
gossiping and impulsiveness versus reflectiveness and circumspection. Um, and so, I mean, I can see how people would read them as, today as introvert and extrovert, but I don't really think that's what she was um, dealing with in her mind. Right. Um, okay. Um, okay. Here's a very specific question that is the kind of question that I, I love. Sarah asks, what is the significance of Edward using scissors in the scene where he reveals he is no longer engaged to Lucy? She then offers some possible options, but I want to hear what you guys have to say. Heidi, <laughs> uh, do, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, so I read that question this morning and this, the first thought I, I, I thought this exact thought, David is going to make sure we get to that question <laughs> because you, so then you've been thinking about yes. it all day in the anticipation and you right? have a great answer. But I like about, I like that about you and how you read, you notice these things. I don't notice those things all the time. I didn't even notice that in the scene. So I went back and read it and sure, I think it could be the cutting off of the relationship with, Lucy, um, kind of that symbolic um, picture of it. Um, and so, yeah, that is just one of those details that's really kind of brilliant, but not every reader catches it. So I really appreciate the readers who do. Now, you, you need to remind me, he uses scissors in which, what does he do with them in this scene? He just picks them up. He just and, picks them up. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah. to me, they just remind He cuts her hair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, because no, because we have two locks of hair, right? right. In the in the novel, and there's a yeah. long tradition. You know, there is, and whether they were taken, scissors would be used to. That's that's a long-standing trope in literature: is cutting off the lock of hair, um, which is hair is a symbol of fertility. And I mean, Alexander Pope wrote a whole satirical epic poem called "The Rape of the Lock," which is about a lover cutting off a piece of a lock of hair. Um, and sending the heroine into fits. Um, and so I think, I mean, I think those scissors are just reminders. I, that, I mean, they would have always been lying around, um, but they're also reminders of the locks of hair that have shown up in the story and, and uh, all that, all that those symbolize. And yeah, I, I think, I think it's a, a, a brilliant detail. Brandon says he commented that he thinks it was Jane letting women know that the men are always going to ruin your sewing scissors, even your dream man. It's inevitable. Uh, but I think I, I immediately connected that with um, the moment with Lucy's, the end of Lucy's hilarious letter uh -huh. where she's like, don't worry, you can keep the lock of hair. <laughs> and because she could, you know, the scissors are, on the the scissors, like there's so much potential in a pair of scissors, like so much potential for action. He could cut the letter in half, you know. He could he could cut hair. I mean, there's so much you could stab someone with scissors in theory. Uh -huh. um, so, I one thing that I've, I've I was thinking about a lot. I've been reading Cormac McCarthy. Um, uh, I've been reading uh, No Country for Old Men, and one of the things that Cormac McCarthy is obsessed with, which I think is why the Coen Brothers made a good movie out of his stuff, is he's obsessed with um, the work that people do like the things they do with their hands, like the way it's, you know, the way you go from one thing to the next, all the steps that it takes to do things. And I was thinking about how Austin doesn't spend a lot of time in, this is how, this is the work that people are doing. This is how they're doing them. So I was struck by the fact that like she doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the things that people have in their hands, unless it's like a book or the, the, the keys of a piano. But then that's usually happening kind of off the edge of the scene. So it really was striking to me that here she puts this tool in this man's hand because even when someone's when it talks about the lock of hair or whatever, it doesn't talk about the actual cutting of the lock of hair. We don't get that scene. Um, 
And so I, I think it's just because I've been reading McCarthy and kind of been noticing how much he, how much time he spends obsessing over the way the steps that people take to do what they're doing. That I was so I was noticing that that doesn't happen as much in this, and so it makes that moment or that much more striking in this book. That was kind of like just I don't have a lot to say about that except that you know there's a difference there, and so it make it does make that scene striking because of the way the rest of the book operates. Mm-hmm. Um, looking for this next question. Um, we'll wrap it up here in a second. Um, okay, so that was okay. Karen, this is, I want to touch on this before we go, because you brought this up at the very beginning. There's two questions I want to touch on before we go. Karen, you mentioned this question, Gabrielle asks, sense and sensibility and heart of darkness in the first episode. And she says, can we hear a bit more about the quote, girly girl novel idea that you brought up and how Austin might or might not bridge that gap in this particular novel? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think all of Austin bridges that gap, and that's something a lot of male readers not familiar with her don't don't know. They think she's just these are love stories, and they're not. Um, so in this, yeah, in this novel, again, I would go back to the philosophy that was the philosophical questions about sense and sensibility, and whether or not we know things primarily through our sense, the intellect, or through our bodily sensation, sensibility. Um, I mean, that was a really important intellectual philosophical conversation taking place. And Austin is like right there in the middle of it, um, embodying it through these characters. Um, so I think just her knowledge of, of, of the, the philosophical questions of the day uh, is, is bridges that gap. This isn't just about romance. Hmm. Okay, so of course my browser just reloaded, so I just lost the <laughs> I just lost the thread. So one second. Um, how did you want? While I'm looking for this thread again, do you want to respond to that? No, I think that was beautifully said. I don't have anything else to say about that. I don't believe that, but mm. um. Okay, so well this was the last this was i know what the question was i just can't i wanted to give the exact wording but the questioner said that we we mentioned this was from jill we mentioned at a couple of different times i think maybe in the first episode the sort of how it feels a bit like a i think what did we say like a fairy tale sort of um it's got the whole marianne's kind of a damsel in distress situation and all that sort of thing um and she wanted to know Okay, here I found it. I found it. my thing. Okay. My computer reloaded. Okay, so she says in the first episode, I think you all addressed the fairy tale feel of the book. There's the Marianne as the damsel in distress and some things like that. She said, "I'd love to hear this idea revisited now that we've got the whole story." So that's not a question, but hi, did you have thoughts on this? I thought you might have have some thoughts on on the fairy tale feel of this book. Do you feel that as it gets to the end of the book, that that sense sort of um, is a thread throughout the whole book, or were we kind of just picking on something that stood out to us early on. Oh no, that's it's there. Whether or not Austin intended to create kind of a, a series of Cinderella stories, she does. Like we have the 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 princess who's destined to be united to a prince and to inherit the kingdom, right? And um who goes through a series of trials and is misunderstood. 
often by older women, which is a kind of a big deal in fairy tales. There's the stepmother or the wicked queen or whatever. That's in all every every Austen novel, whether it's a wicked stepsister or stepmother kind of figure. Um, and is then separated from her love. And then the man has to come and find her, rescue her and be worthy of her and win her. Uh, and and But along the way, both of them, the hero and the, the princess have to be you know, purified along the way and slay some monsters, whether internally or externally. And that is a fairy tale story. And that is a Jane Austen novel. That's the pattern of a Jane Austen novel just set in Regency England. So... Yes, absolutely. These are these are retellings of classic Western fairy tales, which I would absolutely argue are retellings of the gospel story. So even if she didn't, you're not saying she necessarily meant to do that per se. I have no idea, but you know, many me, of them were thought, not even published until after she wrote this. Well, so. exactly. I mean, I I'm as 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 you In know, when form. I'm writing about this for Forma, I'm I'm not that sold on author intent being the interpretive tool of a story anyway. So I think sometimes just to tell a good story means you're telling a fairy tale story. And I think whether she meant to or not, that that are, those elements are there. Karen, have you ever thought about this before? No, I'm thinking now. And so I would, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm resisting, but listening um and so i guess that the only resist out loud <laughs> yeah resist out loud i would say i w- i think i want to say because i'm definitely resistant to the idea of austin as fairy tales but i but i'm hearing so i just want to say then that that it's the fairy tales and austin stories and all good stories tell a, a almost essentially the same story so mm-hmm. it's not I so agree. fairy tales also are just the true a retelling true yes yes yes, mm. yes. Mm. is this an apple and orange thing or chicken and an egg thing or <laughs> well, i think it is a yeah. semantic yeah. thing absolutely yeah. Yeah. but it just comes down to what right. are the what are the elements of a great of a story yeah. yeah and um so you know in in western culture a lot of times we're going to go back to myths and fairy tales and but they even they are not the primeval story that, that's where somebody like right. martha Pry, i think gets it wrong like they they are not the story. The story is the gospel story. The world created good, the world fallen, um, the, the dragon, and, and then Christ redeeming us and restoring the land. Like that, that is the story. And every good story kind of tells that story in some way and from some angle. Right. Okay, let's go to final thoughts here. This is your last chance to say something about... Well, not your last chance ever, but your last <laughs> chance to say it about... Um, Karen's got lots of chances. Um, but uh, Heidi, what are your final thoughts on on sense and sensibility on this conversation? Any threads you want to uh, bring together? Anything that's loose that you that's bothering you that that's uh, causing you anxiety <laughs> that you want to bring together? No, I'm I'm glad you ended on the fairy tale question because if if that wasn't brought up, that was when I wanted to say that these are the reason we resonate with. There's lot, there's lots of reasons moderns resonate with Jane Austen. She remains enduringly popular over uh, the centuries, and some people want to know why that is. And I I think uh, there are some some reasons inherent in our culture of modernity that doesn't have those kind of anchoring social mores that she explores, um, whether satirically or. Uh, as virtuous. Um, and so I think there's some of that, but some of it is just the fact that she tells a, like a great story, the story of somebody 
the, the story of an ordinary life kind of going through these deep, dark valleys of the soul and these right, this rise to happiness and, and resolution that look so different in the lives that the three of us lead that, you know, we're not going off in these grand adventures. We're not going into the heart of darkness, right? But, but we live a life similar to this when we just keep going and try to do the next good thing. And sometimes we suffer and sometimes we see reward for that, but it's always kind of the choice before us. And I think that's one of the reasons why Austin is endures is that exploration of ordinary life, but also great greatness of soul. So I just think we should keep reading Austin. Karen. Wow, I'm... that's that's hard to follow. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I, I guess I'll just say that I think the greatest and again this pushes back against the cultural the popular conceptions of of Austin and just um encourage people as they reread Sense and Sensibility or any of other Austin's novels to think about how um, how she so challenges in a prophetic way um, you know, ra- the radical autonomy that that is pervasive today. So so uh, for Austin, um, happiness and virtue um, are all deeply tied to family and community rather than self. And I just think that is such good medicine for us today that um, that's something to really mm. look for. There's so many good things in Austin, but that's one of the things that we really need today and, and one of the gift, best gifts she can give us today. Mm. Mm. Well, th- again, thank you. Thank you to you both for, for being on the podcast for this conversation. We're done with another book uh, here on Close Reads. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions and engaged in conversation on social media and um, politely fought with one another. That's, that's the best part <laughs> when people fight politely with each other about the books. Um, I guess that's just called a dialogue. Um, but uh, this, has been, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Karen, again, thanks for making the time for us. I, I know you're busy and you're working on some other projects and things like that, including the new book that just came out. So thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to, to join us on the podcast. Well, thanks for letting me be part. How, before we let you go, though, how is that book going? I mean, how did you release that book last week, right? The new one? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a textbook. I never really expected it to get this. <laughs> well, I say that, but you know, you always hope and we've got some pretty sure. neat names in it. And it's, it's, it's going well. Cultural engagement, a crash course in contemporary issues. I much prefer Austin and literature, but you know, this is another <laughs> part of my life is engaging culture. So exactly. Yeah. And we have an excellent, the best section is the section on the arts. So get it just for mm. that. But so where should people get it? I think we said last week, eighth day or hearts and minds or somewhere like that, as opposed to Amazon. I think, I think we're, uh... I mean, people, you know, I'm, who am I to fight Amazon people? You can get it, just, <laughs> just get it, get it anywhere. But if you want to support the independent booksellers, which, you know, is a good thing to do then those are the two that I recommend, but you can get it anywhere. And of course next week, well, actually no, not next week in like, three days you're yeah. going to be joining us in louisville for our conference and eight day books is going to be there so if you're going to be at the conference maybe if you're polite and nice karen will you can buy a book from eight day books and karen might even put her signature in the front cover i just i didn't ask her that so you have to be really polite maybe bring her a gift or something um but you know we shall see <laughs> it's, it, exactly <laughs> it's a it's a cliffhanger right um 
Well, again, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening. And, and don't forget that next week, we are going to start on the Odyssey. We're going to use Emily Wilson's translation. You can read whichever one you like, but we're going to use that new translation as our guide. Uh, and we're going to discuss books one and two. And I'm sure we'll touch on the introduction a little bit, although we will not be referring to... We will be referring to it. We won't be talking about it as an individual text uh, per se. So again, books one and two uh, for next week. With that, for Heidi White, for Karen Swallow Pryor, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading, and we'll talk to you next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.